there ought to be something in this trophy case for uh, these kids who who are not athletes or cheerleaders and that kind of thing. And after Sputnik, you have to realize, uh, yeah. I'm not sure you know, the curriculum totally changed. Totally every, changed after Sputnik. It was amazing, you know. All of a sudden, I mean, it was it was what they call STEM now. The total focus on that right then and there. And as it turned out, coincidentally, our football team was suspended for a year as a, as a rocket point for getting going. <laughs> I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan. And I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. You've probably heard of someone leading a double life. Well, my guest today has led a triple life as an engineer, a scuba diver, and best-selling author. Homer Hickam describes himself as a purposeful adventurer, and I can tell you that's a very apt moniker for this multi-talented and energetic individual. His work and his talents have taken him from a small coal mining town in West Virginia to Utah, Vietnam, Guanaja, Germany, Russia, Japan, and even the dinosaur fields of eastern Montana. Not to mention from pulling army tanks out of ditches to discovering sunken warships and training spacewalkers. There is so much cool stuff to explore with Homer that we've split it into two podcasts for you. In this first episode, we'll explore how his early interest in rock tree led him to break from his family tradition of coal mining and become an engineer, first in the Army and later with NASA. Then how his scuba diving adventures led him to explore little-known World War II wrecks off the eastern seaboard of the United States. Listen in to discover how all that led to his being a best-selling author with a feature film to his credit. So let's get started with part one. Homer, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to talk with you. Well, thank you, Kathy. It's uh, quite an honor to be invited on your uh, podcast. And uh, we've known each other for many, many years. I've always admired you and uh, and your adventurous spirit. Well, thank you. We definitely have that in common, as I'm sure will become apparent as we as we go through our conversation. I've just had the pleasure of finishing the advanced copy you sent me of your soon-to-be-published memoir, Don't Blow Yourself Up, which got to love that title. What great advice for your mother to give you as you set off on the life that you've led. But it you know, I always knew you were leading at least a double life as a scuba diver and an engineer. 
it really became clear as I read that. And you're, I think, the only person I know who's truly led a triple life. <laughs> uh, scuba diving is how we connected through the space side of your world, but it's also the pathway by which you really became a writer. So in the course of our conversation, I'd like to go down each of those roads separately and explore Homer Hickam, a writer's journey, and then also Homer Hickam, man of sea and space. How does that sound? That works, as long as we can talk a little bit about our experiences together as well, because we do have some that are, that are kind of interesting. So, uh, Oh, gladly. I know, of course, that you've written a great memoir, and uh, hopefully Hollywood is going to get going with something on that. So, yeah, we can touch all those bases. Yeah, we'll see. I'm <laughs> not sure who, who would ever play me in that memoir. I don't think I want to contemplate that prospect. <laughs> Well, you know, a uh, quick vignette here. My my mom uh, came on set while they were making October Sky and met the uh, actor, Nat the great Natalie Canada, who was in Sling Blade and a number of other movies, and who was playing playing her. And mom was well into her 90s by then, and um, everything had been stripped away in terms of what what she uh, she said, what she thought. You know, she had she had no filter at that point. And so she looked at Natalie and said, you know, I was hoping Kathy Bates would play me. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. Natalie, Natalie said, well, I'm sure Kathy would have done a great job. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, if I know the story right, but I'm wanting you to set me straight, your first attempt to become a writer, other than essays in grade school and high school, was when you applied to write for your college paper at, at Virginia Tech, and you were rejected. But I'm, I'm wondering what role writing had or hadn't played in your life up to that point, besides schoolwork. Yeah, uh, Kathy, I think if Sputnik hadn't come along and um, made me really want to get involved in the space business, I would have probably become an English professor at some small Midwestern university if, if I had to predict what I would have actually done with my life, because I loved to read growing up. I just read everything that I could get a hold of. My parents were in a, several book of the month clubs, and uh, so I was, you know, I like to read. Since I hardly ever got to talk to my dad, it was at the coal mines or briefly home. And then uh, um, I wonder what was going through my dad's mind. So I tended to pick up some pretty adult books that he was reading just to see what he was he was reading. And so I developed this uh, absolutely love of reading. And that kind of translated into writing. And even though, as you said, I, I was writing a little bit to back in Colwood, where I grew up, little, the little coal mining town. When I got to Virginia Tech, it turned out that I made straight A's in anything that had to do with English and literature and so on. And I struggled in engineering school uh, a little bit. And then I, I was reading the paper, the, the college newspaper, which was then called um, very appropriately, the Virginia Tech. <laughs> and uh, Creative and, name. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. You know, it just, yeah that, that works. I think they call it the Collegiate Times now. It's like, okay, you know, that's better. But anyway... I thought to myself, you know, I think I could write a, a column about the cadet corps because I was in the cadet corps at that time. It's a military system. Um, uh, Virginia Tech was a pure military college at that time. So, and all male, right? Uh, mostly. There was uh, a little population of women at, and they lived up on the hill, a place called Hillcrest. It was an old antebellum uh, home. Uh, built back in the 1800s and there they were and they were like that was impenetrable. There was just no way that you could be allowed 
to go there. I mean, there was just like matrons in front of you, about three, four, five deep. <laughs> Keep those boys away. <laughs> That's right. And two of those women were my cousins. So there was about a hundred, there was about a hundred women and 5,000, 6,000 male population there. So naturally, uh, Hillcrest was of great interest, but we could only look at them from several hundred yards away. But you know, we, we actually had a couple of women engineers uh, oh, students at yeah. that time. So that was interesting. And uh, so that's the only way that I really got to know any women there. But we digress. <laughs> Happens a lot with us, but that's yeah. all right. <laughs> but, so I, I went down and talked to them at first and submitted some of my writing. And at first it got rejected. But uh, then the next year, they they said that they thought I wrote with Flash, which is how I got my nickname at Virginia. Oh, Flash. Flash Hickam, <laughs> everybody's favorite cadet. So I started writing a column for them called Sound Off. And uh, so that's still that's somewhere down in the... Uh, the basement of the Newman Library there at uh, Virginia Tech. But I realized that that I could do it. And I, I learned how to, you know, in the very first line or paragraph to to get people's attention and, and so on. But uh, then all, all that got put off for many years. Yeah, you commissioned into the Army. Yeah, I went in the Army and I was in, you know, Vietnam. But it was on the flight back. I started thinking about, you know, I really want to, I want to write about this experience. It turned out I didn't for 50 years or more, <laughs> but I want to write uh, about this experience. And I, I started thinking uh, about it then, but I wasn't really able to do very much until I became a scuba diver and a scuba instructor and started reading these various dive magazines and realizing, well, you know, I think I can do that well uh, as some of these writers. And uh, I mean, they're just scuba divers, right? <laughs> <laughs> so as scum of the earth, scuba divers, like never rent your house or apartment to scuba divers. They are scum of the earth. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're nasty people. They drag in all <laughs> their, their gear. And, and I wanted to humanize the divers. And um, so I started writing for Sport Diver magazine and, and a couple of the other um, small Aquarius magazines, small skin diving magazines, started cutting my teeth on, on writing. So yeah, a long yeah. answer to short questions. <laughs> well, that, no, that's a great long answer. So when you started doing the scuba writing, was that just to hone your skills and develop your craft, a little bit of pocket money, a little bit of both? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, I you know, always had in mind that maybe I could do a, be a, a rich and famous writer. I later learned that those weren't ex totally compatible. <laughs> the, <laughs> they don't always go together. <laughs> they don't always go together, but um, fame is not what it's cut out to be. Uh, and you know that, I know that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that that I could write for them. And, and, and I was thinking, uh, what am I doing that's interesting? This was interesting. Uh, I, I'm talk we're talking about the early 70s. And so Diving as a sport was just getting very going. new, right? It was very new. And uh, so I felt like that I could break in that way. And that, uh, I mean, the money was, was very, very small. You know, they paid you uh, three cents a word or something, or, or usually just copies of the magazine, yeah. <laughs> which I was happy to get. Pass them out to your friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, send to my folks and, you know, and, and I still got copies. Of, I'm still proud of that. I've got them in a little plastic box, my original oh, yeah in these magazines and uh, but that ultimately led to a much much greater story than just diving itself but finding out about the shipwrecks off of North Carolina specifically a, a U-boat up there 
that led me to start doing that research on why there was a U-boat up there and diving on that U-boat. And I realized after a while that I'd actually stumbled on a story that nobody had really, really told very well or at all that most people uh, didn't know about. And that was the huge battle against the U-boats along our East Coast and Gulf Coast during World War II in the first nine months of the and I didn't know about it. And, you know, I, I fancy myself you know, a bit of an amateur historian. I love history. I knew nothing about it. And uh, so that led to uh, not only writing about it, but also a great adventure, a series of adventure uh, off the East Coast diving on these uh, shipwrecks. And so I got to be known as a writer who wrote about shipwrecks. I started writing for American History Illustrated, which was pretty good. That ultimately led me to, to the first book, Torpedo Junction. Yeah, and I, I want to back up a little bit and establish a bit more context around that because I was trying to make sure I understood the timing properly. You had done an army tour in Germany, but that's not really when this idea about a World War II book took hold. It was when you're back diving with NASA certified and doing scuba instructing in those years. That's when you got this rumor of the wrecks off North Carolina. And and it was about three years, wasn't it, that you did a, a lot of treks out to the Outer Banks trying to find these wrecks and understand what happened to them. But tell us more about how that research process evolved, how long all of this was kind of marinating before it really started to become the story that you tell in Torpedo Junction, which, by the way, just so people know, I'm not someone who routinely reads like, you know, war at sea histories. And in a moment, I'll share my fun part of the Torpedo Junction story, because when I got this book, I was thinking, it's not a book I read. But I got to tell you, I absolutely devoured it. I was trying to impress you. You succeeded, my friend. <laughs> I absolutely devoured it. And what you just said, there was this massive, massive set of battles off our Gulf and East Coast the year before the United States entered the war, uh, it was all kept very secret. Massive amounts of shipping were sunk that really were jeopardizing the supplies that, that England was trying to bring in. And you know, there was not a trace, not a shred, not a word of that in any schoolgirl history that I had come across. So tell us about the marinating and research process right. uh, and how long it took. I will back up. <laughs> I was trained to dive by a fellow by the name of Cliff McClure, who you may uh, not have heard of, but Cliff was one of the original man-high pilots. That was well, no wait, well, no wait now. But I happen to know because I've because I've read "Don't Blow Yourself Up" uh, <laughs> that that was not your first scuba experience. No, well, all right, well, I'll back it up even your, further. <laughs> your your first scuba experience was in Puerto Rico, and it was the kind of thing that would have led most people to say, "Never more, keep me away." <laughs> Not to make the United States Navy mad at me, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I was uh, after Vietnam. I was sent to Puerto Rico as a reserve advisor, and the Puerto Ricans basically said, "Well, thanks a lot, but we got it here." So I did work for them and with the National Guard, but during the weekends. And living in San Juan, Rio Piedras was just quite a treat for me and my little Siamese cat, Gato. And uh, uh, on the weekends, I went out to Roosevelt Roads because it's beautiful out there, uh, the Navy base out there. And I got to know um, a couple of Navy ensigns. Uh, in the book, I call them one Rosie and other Rhodes. I'm keeping them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> protect, protect the guilty. <laughs> anyway, so um, they kept telling me, you need to learn how to scuba dive. Homer, it's great off here. So 
I went out one time and they were in a little rubber uh, dinghy, the Zodiac, and they had one set of scuba gear, one set. <laughs> and, and they had obviously been perhaps partaking of the rum, uh, which is excellent, by the way. <laughs> and uh, so um, I didn't know any better. And so off we go. Um, and if you know anything about Puerto Rico, it's beautiful, the reef structure around there, but it instantly gets super deep. It just drops off, boom. And especially off the, off the uh, east side there where Rosie Rhodes, uh, the naval base was. And so they took me out there and basically started trying to give me instruction how to scuba dive. Obviously, they were not going in the water with me on that one set. So they did. And they told me, uh, never hold your breath. And I went, why? And they looked at each other and said, because we said so. <laughs> so much for your diving physiology training. <laughs> all right, I got it. So uh, I was thinking, well, you could save air by holding your breath, but okay, all right, I'll go along with that. So anyway, they they put a weight belt on me, which had to be about 20 pounds of lead. I didn't have a wetsuit, <laughs> you know, and so turned you into a rock. No patient whatsoever. There was no BC on this thing, a buoyancy compensator. So it's just an old horse collar. No, I didn't even have that. <laughs> just no flotation at all. On that back. A regulator coming around. No octopus, which is the, another the regulator. Backup regulator. Males, you know, so one of them spits in the mask for, for me. And, put it <laughs> and they go, never hold your breath. It's going to be great. And rolled me off into the water. And I'm instantly realized that I may be in a little bit of trouble since I'm sinking rather rapidly. And I see the, the anchor line, which they had dropped, which seemed to go into nothingness forever purple <laughs> purpleness <laughs> i try to get to it i don't make it one of my fins comes off and i'm sinking like well a rock and i look over and there's a fish and i look at that fish and it's like but it, not for long because i'm going down and i hit the sand uh, i have no idea how deep i was and I remembered one thing that they did tell me besides hold the breath. And that's, if you get in trouble, drop your weight belt. And I went, that's a good idea. <laughs> so fumbled with that, you know, and got that off. And nowadays we, you know, you're supposed to get the weight belt away from you and drop it. But uh, I just let it go. I still had the tank weighing me down, but I started kicking my way back. And on the way I saw that fish again. And that fish I'm sure was just like, holy moly, what do we have here? <laughs> but I made it back up to the Zodiac. And both of these guys are asleep. In the Passed out, probably. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, run. It's great. <laughs> the Navy, as we know, work really, really hard during the week and on the weekends. <laughs> they do what they do. So uh, all I knew to do was to take off the gear and, and my mask and everything else. It all sank. I'm sure they had rented it from the, the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> and I crawled back on and woke them up and they went, how'd it go? And I said, great. I saw a fish. And I decided at that moment, I was <laughs> the best scuba diver anybody ever. <laughs> so when I came, came to Huntsville, I found out about this little dive shop called Aqua Space. And it was run by Cliff and Bobby McClure. And Cliff was uh, one of the original man high uh, balloon pilots before pre-astronaut, pre-Mercury. That was hoisting guys to 100,000 plus feet in a capsule, just as sort of a human survival experiment, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, they just wanted to see, you know, what would happen to you up there. And um, and I'm sure they were counting cosmic rays and everything else. And anyway, also being in a small capsule, like nobody had any real experience with, with that at that time. So Cliff was one of those guys. He was in the Air Force and he, he uh, left his uh, the Air Force and 
came to Huntsville in the 60s. And of course, Huntsville was just really booming at that time with Apollo, with the Saturn V and all that. And he worked on that for a while and then uh, learned about scuba diving, got involved with that. And then I met him uh, in 1973, and he certified me as a, finally told me why I shouldn't hold my breath. Boris Law, <laughs> kids, pressure and volume, very inversely. <laughs> so, and you have to look that up. B-O-Y-L-E-S, Boyle's Law. <laughs> Cliff was a, obviously a very technical guy, and so he taught me very technically and all his students. It's not like now, to, today they try to skip over all that compression, reading the tables and, and so on. They skip over that, which I think is a great mistake. But anyway, uh, he taught me that. And also he thought I'd done so well. He, he said, you know, maybe you'd want to be an instructor for me, Homer. So I did. I became an instructor and worked for Cliff for a while. While I was working, I was then working for the Army Missile Command. And that was in the early 70s. And then it was in those early 70s that I heard about the big battle off of uh, Cape Hatteras by the rumor kind of drifting in, you know, diving circles was rather small then. So this rumor started drifting in that there was a U-boat wreck off of North Carolina and that some of the North Carolina divers were, were diving on it. And the question was, what U-boat? What and of course, my question was, what the heck is a U-boat doing off North Carolina? Yeah. They didn't come over here. How could yeah, that be? Like, I, no, I hadn't heard any of that. It's yeah. like, what? What? I thought maybe it had been scuttled, you know, after the war or something like that. So I started... I was very interested and I thought, well, I can write about this. And so I started trying to convince the North Carolina divers. I mean, then you didn't have the internet or anything to look, it up, look up. You just uh, got a phone number that you called and, and hoped that uh, somebody on the other end would answer. And then you'd ask them and maybe they'd give you an answer. And they were very cagey up there. Those wrecks were, were North Carolina wrecks and they didn't want anybody else really on them. And this, this was a special wreck, clearly. And so first I went up with some Huntsville divers and um, we dived with a, well, they're all characters along the North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> he was another one of these characters, Captain Dunn. Captain Dunn had uh, apparently a landing craft left over from Omaha Beach. And uh, so that's the kind of craft that we went out. He claimed he could find this uh, U-boat. And he had no clue where this U-boat was really, but his idea was, okay, we'll go out I have an idea where it is and we'll fish. And if we catch a fish, that's probably over the U-boat. And I was stupid enough to go along with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got out there and of course we didn't catch it. Well, I caught a little barracuda that I let go. And it's like, Captain Dunn, I don't think this is going to work. So Captain Dunn um, said, well, I can get you on a World War II wreck. It's called the WR2. That was the name of the buoy that was over it. And so we went there and um, and dived on it. And uh, I was, you know, like all wreck divers, I'd like to collect stuff off of them. At that time, it was legal to do that. So on this old world. How deep was that wreck? That wreck uh, sat in about 120 feet of water, right? In the okay. same. That's deep for recreational diving, right? So you had to take some extra care. Right. Extra care about how long you're down there and, and how slowly you come up and stop for a while before you, you can't just rock it up to the surface. No, I mean, well, you can, but you're not going to live for a long Yeah. <laughs> Most people say, well, you got an oxygen tank. Well, oxygen is actually poison, as you know, below two atmospheres, below 33 feet. You're breathing air. Uh, and so air is 80% nitrogen and not to get too technical, but tissue 
absorbs nitrogen. And I mean, right now we're saturated with nitrogen. Most people don't right. know that, but you are. You're totally saturated with nitrogen. If there was a bungee cord from about you know 20 miles up, it'd jump you up there. Well, that nitrogen is like a pop bottle. It likes to come out in the form of bubbles, which is not particularly good for the human body. So yes, we, were, we had double tanks, double steel tanks, breathing air at that depth. And uh, the deepest depth is, I mean, we were, we, believe me, I knew a decompression tables backwards and forwards. Plus I had that yeah. Italian bendomatic on my shoulder. Yeah, which is a, an early version of a dive computer, except wasn't terribly reliable. No, it was very, very early. It didn't have any electronic parts. It was all analog, it had a little sponge or something in there where air would pass through into a bladder and cause this needle to move. So you can imagine how accurate it was. But if you could keep it out of the red, theoretically, you were okay. But uh, believe me, we paid attention to the decompression, the Navy decompression tables. And so anyway, so I'm, we're down there and I'm working on this porthole. I'm going to get this porthole. Off. It's going to be great. You know, brass, nice brass oh, porthole. Oh, yeah. man, the brass porthole is like the the, the wreck divers dream to have a brass porthole. It's like, oh, this is great. Never mind. It's been underwater since 1942. And it's like kind of welded in there, but I got, I got my crescent wrench. I'm going for it. And I get pushed from the back and I turn around and I see this rather large tail disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, kind of and, pointy tail, right? <laughs> that's interesting. And so, and then it turns around, it's like a small submarine and it's a uh, sand tiger sharks and sand tiger sharks may or may not be man eaters. They, um, or woman eaters or human eaters. <laughs> we don't know for sure. Uh, we know off South Africa, they tend to be very aggressive and they do uh, eat a number of swimmers every year. In the, uh, in the Atlantic on uh, the East Coast, not so much, but I figured he was illiterate, you know, and so- uh, <laughs> He might not know I, that. <laughs> I, I didn't mention this in the book, but as that rather large shark turned around and came back at me, he had his claspers out which is not a real good thing for anybody because, you know, the, those lower uh, fins, what they do. <laughs> but anyway, so hugging, just, hugging uh, is not what he has in mind. <laughs> you know, uh, well, he's excited. Clearly he's an excited <laughs> shark. So, <laughs> so was, after a couple of runs from him and his other buddy, I went and found my, my two other buddies and they were also having trouble with these guys they decided that, well, uh, maybe we ought to go up the anchor line. And so we did. But as just as you mentioned, you have to go up very slowly. Uh, you're, you're breathing off nitrogen as you go, but you can't go all the way to the surface. You have to stop 10 or 15 feet and sometimes lower because especially in North Carolina, that anchor line is going up and down. So uh, if you're trying to just hang on to it, you're going <laughs> to go up and down. Yeah. But you got to pick a spot there and kind of let it slide. And uh, we're looking down into the gloom. The sand tiger is uh, who, by the way, I, I don't want to be mean to sand tigers. They're very territorial. And after this era, a lot of divers, they started these commercial runs out to these wrecks, taking very inexperienced divers out there. So they also went out and killed a bunch of the sand tigers, oh. which I was very, very much against. I hated them. They're not just nuisances. That's ridiculous. No, no it, that's where they live. And that's what they were telling us, that this is where I live. And yeah. they were gonna, if they wanted to bite me, they would have bit me, <laughs> So, but they're hanging at the 2015 10 going back and forth. Up comes a herd of little sharks that would actually bite you. <laughs> these, little, <laughs> these little lemon sharks. And, uh, you know, they run four or five, six feet at most. And um, they got but, little mouths that could take probably about a grapefruit out of you. And they are nippy. 
they're very nippy and they were serious. I mean, they were coming in and it was like, boy, you guys are the most interesting fish we've seen ever, except <laughs> for these strange bubbles that come out of your head. Ultimately, uh, we finally decompressed enough to get on back onto the boat. And I, I was last because, you know, I was the guy in charge. I was the reason that everybody was there. And so as I'm crawling back onto this landing craft, a lemon came up and grabbed one of my fins and ripped it right off of my oh. foot. And um, I like the fastest turtle known to mankind. I, <laughs> <laughs> I looked up and there was Captain Dunn. I said, Captain Dunn, Captain Dunn, there's sharks down there and they tried to eat us. And he, he'd had his old suspenders. He said, yep, that's what all them divers I bring out here say. <laughs> <laughs> you could have mentioned it. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So you didn't find a U-boat on that first trip, but you did eventually find and dive on a couple of them and also then started scurrying around the archives and even finding some of the crew members that had been on on the submarines and on the American ships that sank them. Yeah, I did. The, um, the U-352, which was this original uh, U-boat that I'd, I'd heard about, and it sits in about 110 feet of water um, uh, and uh, off Cape Hatteras, about 20 miles or so. It's not, close, not far from the monitor, actually, the monitor, mm. which is interesting. There for a while, they thought they'd found the monitor, not the... U-352, but it turned out that uh, most of the crew of the U-352 survived its encounter with the Coast Guard cutter Icarus, and uh, the captain was uh, probably one of the worst U-boat captains ever known to, in the history of mankind. I give him his due. He's only 29 years old. <laughs> well, how did, you, how did you find all that out about him? I mean, one of the things I really loved about Torpedo Junction, and I also want to ask you how you settled on this structure it is the structure, not not so much a device, but this is not sort of a you know full speed ahead, left standard rudder, who shot who story. You you introduce us to a young American boy from the Midwest who is sort of itching to get away and see the world and finds himself on the Gulf Coast, signed on to some merchant vessel that's going to sail to England, and then then you pause and you pick up a young German farm boy and. And how honored he is to be, uh, knows he's going to be conscripted, but he has the honor of being taken into the U-boat force, the famous U-boat force. And you basically bring their two lifelines together off Cape Hatteras on a fateful night on a cold, dark sea. Uh, and, and, that, and that just completely fascinated me and was such a powerful way to, to bring me, at least, into all the human dimensions of these pieces of metal that are on the bottom of, of the sea. How did you, who was the first of those crew members, your German or American, that you managed to find and start unraveling the, the very human dimensions of the story? The first uh, was really Helmut Rathke, the captain of the uh, U-352. And because the Von Braun team was here in Huntsville, there are a lot of German families. And again, no internet, no email, nothing. So I carried it to Oscar Holderer. I don't know if you knew Oscar or not, but he was one of the Von Braun team. And Oscar had relatives in Germany close to Flintsburg, which a lot of the U-boat uh, crew retired Flintsburg up in that area. So he wrote, again, everything's kind of slow. Yeah, snail mail. To relatives in Germany. And, um, and they were in, interested enough to track Captain uh, uh, Rathke down. Once they had his address, I wrote him a letter and Oscar translated it for me. And that was, by then I had 
we had dived on the U-boat once. And uh, so uh, I could tell him that we were researching it. And it, that impressed him quite a bit. And he wrote back a very gracious letter. And I'd ask him whether he had booby-trapped the hatches. Because <laughs> right. I would imagine. They, they used to do that before they were sinking, right? If they had yeah. a moment, which most of the time when they were sinking, they didn't have a moment, right. you know. But uh, he assured me that they didn't and told me, began to tell me the whole story from his point of view. And uh, then I started tracking down crew members of the Icarus, the Coast Guard cutter that had sunk it, and got their side of the story as well. The one you're referring to, though, is the U-85, a different U-boat. There were no German survivors, but that was a, a Navy ship that sank. It was the first U-boat sunk in American waters, and it was the destroyer uh, named the Roper. It was old World War One, four-stacker, uh, coal-fired um, destroyer that the Navy agreed to allow to hunt for submarines because Admiral King, who was in charge of a Navy at that time, he wanted to go out in the Pacific. And uh, that was a big Navy war out there. So he wanted to get all his best ships out there. And he was not willing to do very much for the East Coast. One of the reasons why we had such a debacle along the East Coast. Yeah. So anyway, it turned out that the Jacob Jones, a destroyer just like the Roper, had been sunk about a month before by a German U-boat. And the captain of the Roper knew the captain of the Jakey, and all hands were lost. I think two, maybe two survivors. And um, so he was a pretty nervous captain of the Roper, and uh, Hamilton Howe was his name, and so became, later became an admiral. So he had the crew awake for days. They were they just didn't know what they were going to encounter. And so what was later in a magazine article with American History illustrated called uh, The Night of the Roper that I wrote. I got to know members of the crew of the Roper and actually got to interview Admiral Howe as well about what happened that night. On the German side, since there were no survivors, the bodies were collected afterwards. And uh, one of the dead German sailors had a diary that he had kept to the very day that he lost his life. And so that was in the National Archives. And the Freedom of Information Act had just been passed. I think it's 75 or so. And <clears throat> I was able to access the archives again over the phone. I had some very, very helpful clerks up there who were willing to help me. And they just went the extra mile to get me this information about the U-boats and about the uh, Eastern Sea Frontier that uh, they yeah. kept a daily diary as well about what went on. So I was able to put this story together. And you're talking about well, that that intrigued you. you. You were able to see Eric Dagenkolb was his name, and then Admiral Howe on the other side, and his crew, Lieutenant Ken Tebow and uh, uh, Harry Heyman, who was the three-inch gunner that hit the U-85. So what I had learned uh, in the process of, of writing some articles before that, that what people are really interested in is other people. And so if uh, with Torpedo Junction writing that book, it, I mean, there were so many ships sunk and so much happened. It could just become very, even with the horrendous blood being let and, and, and killing going on, it still would get kind of boring after a while to read this ship sunk and this ship sunk and this ship sunk. And we're talking about 400 ships and uh, uh, seven, uh, seven or eight U-boats sunk during that period. And so I decided that I would make it much more personal. Uh, my touchstone was the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Dione that was out there during the whole time. The Icarus was just passing through. It just happened to catch U-352. 
the Dion was out there the whole time and they struggled with what they were saying. And they 165 foot Coast Guard cutter. Against uh, the able, world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the U-boats outgunned them. You know, they had a bigger gun, 88 millimeter gun. Uh, they were faster and they were hidden. And a key point that you bring out that, again, was one of those who knew America wasn't in the war. America politically very much did not want to be in the war. And this was happening and it was being kept very secret from the public, I think, lest they terrify everybody. But another consequence was, you know, you should have, someone should have sent out blackout orders to, you know, black out the towns along the coast, but that might imply we're getting into a war. So there were no blackout orders. So every ship that, every civilian ship that's sailing along the coast trying to get to Europe is, is backlit by the lights on the shore, like making them, you know, sitting duck targets like in a shooting gallery at a state fair. And they're sailing one by the each, not in convoys, because again, we're not at war. The Navy has no authority to tell anybody to sail together at a certain time. No, even though we had learned that lesson in World War One, yeah, some German U-boats had come over during World War One, and we had formed convoys. And the British kept telling us when we got into war, convoys is you have to have convoys, or you're going to lose all these ships. And we went, eh, you know. And uh, I know it's astonishing for most of us to imagine it, but back then the federal government liked to keep bad news from the people. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, that that's kind of what happened. They um, they just let them keep the lights on, and at night, and and these ships were running with their running lights on anyway, and they were just uh, in predictable uh, shipping pattern. lane patterns. Yep. And so, even if they had their lights off, the U-boats could back off from New York City or Baltimore or Washington or whatever it was that were creating the big glow on the horizon. And here come the ship, you know, making a silhouette as it yeah. goes by. And it's just like, gotcha. I mean, there was a couple of U-boat captains didn't even want to waste their torpedoes. They just got up and unlimbered the 88 millimeter gun and sank the ships that way. I mean, just like the old pirates, you know, shooting cannons off. And it's interesting, uh, I think, perhaps for our listeners to know why North Carolina, uh, real quick. The Gulf Stream comes up very close to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. If you look at the map, you can see that that whole coast kind of jets out. Merchant ships and all ships tend to use that, that Gulf Stream to come up because they save fuel. And, and it's a boost, yeah. It's a boost. And then inside the uh, Gulf Stream is a Labrador current. So ships coming from the north tend to use it to come down as well. Well, they brush up together right off of North Carolina. They're all very, very close together. So the U-boats knew that, and uh, that was the perfect crunch point, torpedo junction, for uh, to catch ships going north and south. And as the war started, there weren't convoys. They didn't have to worry about destroyers or cutters or anything because they were out there, they were deployed, but they were just like hunting hornets all over the farm, somebody said. The odds of them catching a U-boat were was very, very slim. They, did, they had a little primitive sonar, and later they had some primitive radar, but mostly it was just out looking and listening to distress calls from merchant ships uh, being attacked. And this all coalesced in my head and then I went off to Germany and lived for three years over there with the 7th Army Training Command. And while I was over there, I got to interview more German U-boat crew members. I got to tour. By then, I had dived on U-352 and the U-85. I dived on both of them. And so I got to actually tour a Type 7. These were types, what called a Type 7 U-boat. They were rather small. 
got to tour the one that one remaining one at Flensburg and see what the interior really looked like and get an idea of this awful, oppressive, just tiny little place that these 30 men had to live in with one one water closet. Okay. And you got into German admiralty records, right? Were you able to get into those archives? They were actually at the Naval Archives after World War II. They brought all those back. They were in German. But I had uh, translators here in, in Huntsville who were willing to work cheap. Yeah. And they thought it was fascinating, too. And so they would translate these U-boat diaries. Uh, one thing was that Dernitz, Admiral Dernitz, the German commander of the Navy at that time, he required every U-boat to check in daily where they were, what they were doing, everything, which was great for the Royal Navy since they had tapped into all this. They knew everything that was going on. And they were too fast to share it with the American uh, naval intelligence. They didn't trust our intelligence for a while. I got great help from the National Archives. That's cool. So it's your couple of years diving here and then over to Germany five-ish years before you finally see your way to write it? Uh, I came back after uh, Germany and got a job offer from John Thomas at the Space Lab Program Office. and uh, That's NASA's office in Huntsville. That's right, in Huntsville, Marshall Space Flight Center. I started writing it then. I got a little compact computer. Oh, yes, remember that? I still got it. <laughs> I thought, well, this is worth some money. I looked it up on eBay. It's worth about, I don't know, 75 bucks. <laughs> so you're clacking away on your compact computer. I am, my little compact. So I, I'd gotten into word processing over in Germany, so I knew about that. And it really is helpful for an author, as you well know. You, you don't have to strike and, and rewrite yeah. and have somebody type it for us. It's great. But anyway, I did that. And you had settled on a publisher, a target publisher, because you've become so familiar with the Navy history world, right? The the U.S. Naval Institute Press? The Naval Institute Press, and I was a member uh, because, uh, obviously, they were also a good place to go for photographs of the Navy ships and also information that they had. And by the way, while I was writing, I was writing for American History Illustrated and Skin Diver Magazine and Sport Diver Magazine, all these magazines. I got a call from this uh, insurance broker up in Maryland. He had read one of my pieces in American History Illustrated, and he was trying to work on a on a book about fiction, about submarines, and he wanted to kind of pick my brain about it. And I thought he was trying to get my research for free. And uh, I did talk to him a couple of times, and I didn't think he ever had a chance to ever get published. That was maybe the Maryland insurance guy named Tom Clancy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> He did, he did okay. <laughs> he did all right. <laughs> so uh, his first book was with the Naval Institute Press, but people don't realize that Red, The Hunt for Red October it was wasn't, that's all right. press the Naval Institute Press. So then that came out before my book, and because he had he had published there, I mean, I, I'd already thought about it, but I just like, okay, if Tom can get published, <laughs> then so can I. And so I had been writing all this, and I I had not sent it off to anybody or anything, and I thought it was ready to go, and and being the idiot that I was uh, about publishing everything else, I just wrote a cover letter and shipped it right off to him. There you go. And uh, and then waited for my royalties to roll in. And what I got back, of <laughs> course, was a manuscript. <laughs> saying, it's not for us. We looked at it. It's not for us. And then because I was an idiot, I did a good thing. 
I turned around and sent it back to them and suggested that maybe a different editor needed to look at it. I mean, that's just unheard of, Kathy. You Total, know it. Totally unheard of. <laughs> Nowadays, they would somehow try to kill you. Maybe you did that. I don't know. They'd get to hire a hitman. It's so off the wall to do that. But I got a letter back and said, now that we've looked at it, we, we think that we do want to publish it. However, you need to go through and footnote everything. That's like my college experience home where I applied to the pretty well only university I wanted to go to and, and got the skinny letter back that says, yeah, no thanks. You know, and I was crushed, 17 years old. So I sat down and I wrote a letter back sort of saying, uh, I'm kind of crushed. I got to visit the campus. This is in the days before you did the 17 city campus tour. We, I visited only that campus. Kind of felt like I really fit. Can you tell me on what factors I wasn't competitive if you'd have any second rounds of consideration, would you look at me again? And if not, forward my application to this other campus in the University of California system and fired that off. And some weeks later, I got back the fat envelope that said, actually, we like you a lot. Fill out all these papers. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, uh, sometimes ignorance is not only bliss, it's an advantage. <laughs> 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 yeah, it certainly was. Certainly was in this case. Yeah, well, things are meant to be. I, I, I believe. I believe in kismet. I believe that our road has been kind of laid out for us, and um, we just have to kind of trust our own instincts and that there is goodness out there in the universe that's going to look after. My mom always say, used to say that God looks after fools, drunks, the United States of America, and my little sunny boy. And <laughs> I told that from Mark Twain, except for the sunny boy part. But uh, but it was true. Very true. Good things happen to people who strive and uh, make it work. So as I sorted through your history and wrote a few things down, you get Torpedo Junction out in 1989, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it's about a decade before Rocket Boys comes out, which many people may know as October Sky. That's the way right. the movie was titled. But in Don't Blow Yourself Up, you you know, there's a lot that went on in that decade of your life. <laughs> lots going yeah, on. Kathy Sullivan, that was, the, you know, that's what messed me up. Was, she was so bright and ahead of everybody <laughs> else. It's like, I just, I just can't do anything. I'm going to wait about 10 years for it. <laughs> no, I, no. Honestly, um, <laughs> I, I did get to meet you. and Torpedo Junction is what really... Yeah, it just came out. And so um, I thought, well, I'm going to give... You're in the Navy, you know? I'm going to give Kathy a copy of my book. That's it, you know? And uh, you know, it's great. Sitting around the conference room, I still see that little conference room at the neutral buoyancy simulator, and you're there at the head table, and mostly Bruce McCandless, right? Right, my, my common spacewalking buddy. And we're all sitting around, you know, and believe me, we were totally, utterly impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Just waiting to see what assignment we were going to get, whether we got Bruce or Kathy. And so I always wanted Kathy. <laughs> so so we, we, ha we have to fill this picture in a little bit for the listeners. Where Homer and I first met was at NASA's Huntsville Space Center, Marshall Space Flight Center. They had, at the time, the only big water tank that we could practice spacewalks in. And Homer, being an available scuba diver, would volunteer to come over when we were going to do a test. And you needed divers to carry the cameras around so the folks topside could watch the test. You needed divers to ferry tools and equipment back and forth. They were called utility divers. And every astronaut in a training spacesuit would have two scuba divers, think of one perched on each shoulder, 
just keeping a close eye on them and on the suit, looking for leaks and things like that. And we got to uh, trim you out first. Yeah, that's right. Head weights, which meant we got to turn the astronauts upside down and shake them. <laughs> true, true story. <laughs> Not everybody wanted to do that, you know? <laughs> Trying to make us completely neutral so we would hover in the water as if we were weightless in space. Otherwise, you fell into the suit because there's still yeah. gravity, even though you're neutrally booing, you yeah. fall into the suit. That's where we met. And so for many years, actually, uh, I knew Homer as a face across the room and then a pair of eyes behind a scuba mask with a top of curly hair. I could talk and Homer could hear me. He could never talk to me. And that's all I knew of Homer. I probably only dimly could have connected your name to you until my copy of Torpedo Junction hit my mailbox. And that's to me, that's really where our friendship started because it, it woke me up to the fact that there was this fascinating person that I had never had the time or made the effort to get to know more than as the eyes behind the scuba mask. Well, you you did what you could. I mean, you were you were very, very busy and you were flying back and forth to Houston and, and it wasn't like, you know, you had a chance to really sit down and talk. Yeah, we never had a chance to go out for beer or dinner or something. No, no. and we were all volunteers there, uh, except for just a few staff in the tank. So we were from all over the center doing all kinds of different things. And as soon as the test was over, for the most part- You guys part, were gone. We were gone. Yeah, we were yeah. going back to the office. I think, I'm pretty sure, but you were the first female astronaut to work in the tank. Yeah, I was at Huntsville. Yeah. yeah. And so God only knows what kind of closet that they had you in. Back. <laughs> it was it was a closet to change clothes into. Yeah. <laughs> we, we never visited. You know, so I have no clue what was there. <laughs> but yeah, you were the first. And so, uh, I mean, that was just very intriguing, uh, needless to say, to all of us. And uh, women were swim camera operators, which is right. a bulky box. But it took a while before you started becoming uh, utility divers and then safety, safety divers. divers. Yeah. Safety yeah. So, but that all started to happen. It was kind of cool, uh, really, yeah. to see that uh, kind of thing going on. But that, you know, that's what happened. So, I wanted to impress you, and I, I gave you the torpedo junction. But I, I had to say that the most remarkable thing was I trimmed you out, got you as close to uh, neutrally buoyant, weightless, and while you were working on the Hubble. You suddenly stopped and said, I don't know who did this, but I think this is the best trim I've ever had. <laughs> now, I immediately had to signal for the water safety diver to come down because I needed to go pee. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, wow. <laughs> I was just like, oh, wow. I can't believe this is this has happened, you know? And so uh, it was really, really cool. <laughs> All right. We're going to, we're going to, I want to come back to, to Rocket Boys, though, that is and isn't a memoir in a, in a lot of ways. And it seems to me now reading your account of the writing of it in Don't Blow Yourself Up, it seems like you were almost kind of resisting all the way writing it. it seemed to be a little bit of who'd want to hear about Colwood. But there also seemed to be a more significant struggle going on. So tell me about your personal experience getting to the point of, of writing uh, The Rocket Boys, because... That story really wanted to be told by the little boy who you were when you were growing up and living it. And it's got to be an interesting experience to kind of, as an adult, put yourself back in that little boy's skin and live, kind of live that life again. What was that like? Yeah, absolutely. I like to say I got a million dollars worth of psychotherapy writing Rocket Boys that I didn't even know I needed until I had done it. So what happened there was I was a member of a writer's club and so on here in Huntsville. 
back in the 70s and then the 80s and then a little bit in the 90s as well. And so there were members there who kept encouraging me to write about growing up in this coal town. Colwood, West Virginia. And I resisted it, that. I, I didn't, I couldn't imagine, since I'd grown up there and was very familiar with it, I couldn't imagine how I could make that interesting at all. And so after Torpedo Junction, uh, I got totally involved with the Space Lab J mission, SDS-47, and spent a lot of years over in Japan. And then I got, after that, it was the International Space Station and working with the Russians and going back. So I was very busy with my NASA career. And the Hubble, oh, by the way, the Hubble Space Telescope repair mission. Oh, yeah. by the way. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it in the other segment. <laughs> I wrote some articles for Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine. The editor was Pat Trenner. And she called me one night uh, around, around December of 94 and asked me if I had a short article. She needed a filler. And uh, I got the reputation of being a fast writer, if not a good one. And so I actually didn't have anything. But I looked across my desk and there sat perfectly crafted steel De Laval rocket nozzle left over from the days when I was a rocket boy, built rockets in this little little town after, after Sputnik. And it just something clicked in for, my head. For, for the Big Creek Missile Agency. The Big Creek <laughs> Missile Agency, who, by the way, we were number two in a space race there for a while. The Russians had launched two Sputniks. The Americans had blown up three feet off the uh, pad down at Cape Canaveral with their Vanguard, but we had gotten uh, rockets up to 200 feet by then. So we thought we were number two in the space race. Uh, Werner von Braun caught us all up again in January with the Explorer 1, but you know, that's history. Uh, so <laughs> I told Pat about this. I, You know, I could write you 2,000 words of what she wanted about when I was a kid and in this little coal town in West Virginia, and we built rockets. And I have to say that Pat Trenner was completely, totally, utterly underwhelmed with this idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I did it anyway. And as I wrote it, things came out that I hadn't thought about in a long, long time. I, I thought about my parents and, and their reaction to me starting to build rockets and blowing up things. And I started talk, thinking about the other boys and what they were like. And I started thinking about Miss Riley, my science teacher and what she had done. I really hadn't thought about that in all these years. And that's why I think, you know, it was fresh when I wrote it. And so then I sent it up and Pat and the whole staff loved it. They published it. And the next thing I knew, I started hearing from New York publishers and also Hollywood. And they said, are you going to write a memoir about this? And I said, well, I am now. And so that's what really got me. <laughs> Uh, about writing it, but I did take a, a, a wrong turn and that I took it from the standpoint, I was going to write it about, I'm a NASA engineer, you know, and uh, I'm working with the Russians and all this kind of stuff. And I was going to, I was going to write it from the standpoint of this NASA manager looking back on his life with a little vignette about that time Kathy Sullivan said I would trimmed her out well and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I did that and I was 200 some pages in it. And I just realized this is not, this is not working. And I talked to a friend of mine who grew up with me in Colwood in that area. And um, she was a professor at the University of Ohio. You know, she said, you should write it from Sonny, who I was known as Sonny, from his perspective. I always loved that boy. Not that she loved me now, but she loved me then. And so, um, so and that and the little light bulb went off in my rather dense head. And I thought, yeah, I got to do that. I've got to capture Sonny. I've got to let Sonny tell this story. And so I did. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular. I channeled Sonny 
Sonny, I let Sonny, who was a good boy, who wanted to do the right thing, who 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 had a father, a very, rather distant father, who he adored, and could never really get close to him. And so, a lot of the reasons that I actually built the rockets came out as I was writing this. That I didn't even realize them, and that's that was one of the secrets of writing this book was that you realize that Sonny doesn't know this, and uh, he doesn't know <laughs> anything about his his father really and his mother. He just knows what he's seeing and feeling, but as a reader, you realize that he he doesn't have the knowledge, the skill, even the temperament to really do well in this environment, yet he does. And it's because of his friends around him and the teacher and his mom and ultimately his father. And so it became a great, it's not a story of rockets. It is a story of people. And uh, I think that's really why it works. It worked in the end. What did you find out about your dad as you wrote it? Did you, did you find your father writing it? I did. He wouldn't leave me alone. Now, Dad passed away in 1989. He did read Torpedo Junction before he passed. I think that impressed him. And uh, so, so that was a good thing. I was always, you know, the emergency backup son. I, I realized that. <laughs> My brother, Jim, was the perfect, <laughs> perfect you know, and so it was... Uh, it was clear that I was just a backup as far as dad was concerned. <laughs> uh, the Rockets made him pay a little bit more attention to me. And as I was writing this, I mean, I actually dreamed that I heard my dad's voice and so on telling me what was important to him. What was important to my dad was this town of Coldwood. He thought it was the perfect place to live. That's why he was later when he saw that I, you know, wasn't a total idiot, that maybe I could become a mining engineer because he was one of the best mining engineers in the country, but he didn't have a degree. So the idea of me becoming a mining engineer and coming in and taking his place and keeping this perfect little town of Colwood going, this perfect little company town was very, very important to him. So as I wrote it, I realized I have to bring out the character of Colwood as well and the people who live there. And that was his voice uh, telling me all that. Interesting. It strikes me that your Miss Riley was, you know, the Mrs. Frizzle of your day, the school teacher and magic school bus, right? Get messy, try things. Does that seem apt to you? Yeah, I mean, Frida Riley, uh, I mean, she was a beautiful young woman. She was only five years older than we were. She had been a valedictorian at Big Creek High School and then gone off to Concord, uh, which is university now, Teachers College at that time, was the valedictorian there. Uh, she was a great music musician. She played the piano and so on. But for some reason, she decided to come back and teach at Big Creek High School. And Miss Riley, I mean, she was just a consummate teacher. She loved, obviously, to teach. And uh, however, she, Big Creek High School was known as a football school and, and sports school and trophies from one end of the hall to the other. Just football, sports trophies. The big deal was to be a football player or a cheerleader, a majorette, something like that. And she thought, you know, there ought to be something in this trophy case for uh, these kids who who were not athletes or cheerleaders and that kind of thing. And after Sputnik, you have to realize, uh, yeah. I'm not sure you know, the curriculum totally changed. Totally Every, changed after Sputnik. It was amazing, you know. All of a sudden, I mean, it was it was what they call STEM now. The total focus on that right then and there. And as it turned out, 
coincidentally, our football team was suspended for a year as a as a rocket point for getting going. <laughs> uh, so all of a sudden, uh, it's like I mean, uh, we were we were you're the stars. We were. I mean, believe tell me, I know the football team did not like that at all. <laughs> but um, her idea was that maybe we could go to the county science fair and maybe win a third place uh, ribbon and that she could convince Mr. Turner, the principal, to put that in a trophy case as well. And so that was her idea and why she became our great, great supporter. And she was just a, a beautiful young woman who unfortunately during the Rocket Boys time came down with Hodgkin's disease, which is now curable, but wasn't back then. And so she was struggling with that during the entire three years of the Rocket Boys. Well, and you went to the National Science Fair and won a couple of medals, as I recall. And, yeah, the gold uh, and silver medal. What did you feel when you discovered your dad had kept those? I mean, that's that was a fantastic thing. I, after when Dad realized his black lung, lung was killing him, and as he realized that he wasn't going to be around much longer, he convinced my mom to box up all our toys and you know, my brother and my toys and everything and ship them off to us and. I got those boxes and I just put them in the garage and I didn't even open them up and and some of them even got wet. We had a little flood and so wasn't too long before Pat Trenner called the editor of Smithsonian Air and Space that I went out there and decided to do something with that and all of a sudden I noticed that there was one box that it was my dad's handwriting, not my mom. Everything else was mom's. Okay, you know, here's your Lionel train set and all that. It was dead and it just said Sonny on it and I recognized he's a very distinctive scrawl and I opened it up and there I'd forgotten there was the medals and there was uh, the little paper that came with it and also that perfectly crafted steel De La Bell rocket nozzle and that's I realized my dad had kept this for me all those never mentioned it kept him all those years it obviously made him proud Although he didn't, you know, they weren't huggers. These World War II depression type. No, that's true. <laughs> he might have hugged my my brother, but uh, and my maybe my mom occasionally. I don't know. Well, at least twice. <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway, I mean that. Believe me, that was just like boom. You know, it's the end of my heart. But I had that sitting. If I had, if he hadn't done that, and I hadn't had that nozzle sitting there, I probably wouldn't have written Rocket Boys because it would not have occurred to me to me that this could be made into a story. So, kismet. Thank heavens for that. This has been part one of a two-part conversation with Homer Hickam. Come back next time for part two, which will explore his adventures with scuba diving and spacesuits as a NASA engineer, including a hilarious underwater encounter with Stephen Colbert. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.